Hello friends, welcome back. My guest today is Brian Murarescu, lawyer and author, and we're talking about the psychedelic origins of Western civilization. The mysteries of the ancient world are just getting stranger and stranger. Did Plato and Marcus Aurelius and thousands more attend a secret psychedelic ceremony which formed the basis for the Christian sacrament? So today, expect to learn why an annual parade finished with a secret ceremony in ancient Greece, why the Christians may have wanted to keep this a secret, what it was like to research in the Vatican's secret archives, the implications if all this is true, and much more. This is like real-life Dan Brown shit. That actually is. Secret societies, a crazy potion that lets you die before you die. Uh, Brian is he's spent 12 years researching this. I first heard him on Joe Rogan, and I just had to get him on. So, yeah, I really hope that you enjoy this. It's just a fascinating, cool story. Uh, and if you enjoy it, the book is uh, is a good read as well. In other news, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by you. If you love the show, you can help it grow by supporting us at patreon.com slash modernwisdom. From as little as £3 a month, you can help to support the show. If you love the episodes that I put out every single week and you want to contribute in whatever way you can to making the show continue to grow, then simply head to patreon.com slash modernwisdom. There are tons of different benefits and levels, ways that you can get involved, including suggesting guests, getting shout-outs on the show, and even becoming a researcher. Patreon.com slash modernwisdom. But now, it's time for the wise and wonderful Brian Murarescu. You're a qualified lawyer. Why are you talking about the psychedelic origins of Western civilization? That's a great question. I feel like uh, I'm, I'm still a barrister. Still, ba- do you, Is that what you call it? Barristering? Uh, l- lawyering? L- being a, being <laughs> a barrister. A being a ba- barristering. Yeah, if anyone can tell us if the <laughs> verb is to barrister. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I still do that, believe it or not. I'm, I'm still in good standing in New York State and Washington, D.C. for the moment. And uh, I don't know. I don't know. I just I started reading about psychedelics and I couldn't stop. But weren't tempted to try them. You actually, uh, uh, sorry, decided not to try them. You remained uh, psychedelically uninitiated uh, throughout the writing of your book. My virginity was and remains intact. Is that going to change at any point soon? Um, soon in the coming years, I'm not sure exactly when, but as it becomes legal and as the facilities come online where you can have an experience that is, uh, you know, responsible and scientifically rigorous and also for me, authentically sacred and historical, I think that'll be my moment. It's going to be so fascinating to see what happens to you having spent over a decade thinking, reflecting, considering and then also going into wondering what other people's experiences are like the the meta experience what did they think what did they feel man whatever it is that you end up going through is you're going to be shot into another universe i can't wait i'm always part of me is always thinking the great irony of all of this would be if absolutely nothing happened. <laughs> <laughs> all this time all this time <laughs> I was wrong. 
fucking what a waste. It was all a big troll. Uh, is there a movie coming out? <laughs> is there a movie coming out about the book? Um, we, we hope so. Um, at least a, a documentary series. So we're busy pitching that to different networks and streamers uh, here in the US, but obviously it'll have a, a global audience. Dude, that's so cool. Yeah, man, we have that. That's that's been a you know a big part of my my job the past few weeks and months. But negotiating what sort of a series it should be, who should play you? Can we get Tom Hanks? All that sort of stuff. Uh, all all of the above, and where do you go, and how do you get there, and why are you doing it, and is this you know is this one episode? Is this a thousand episodes? And how do we pair the mystery and suspense with the rigorous academic scholarship and you know make it make it a feast for the eyes and for the ears it's got to be a killer soundtrack right nice yeah so it's going to be barristering writing producing the triple threat that's the that's the big triple threat that's my new business card chris i love it i love it if you need an agent speak to me so right laid on us (laughs) what's the story arc of history that you're following here what are we what are we talking Uh about Right. So it's, um, you know, I call it the best kept secret in history, which are, which is not my words. These are the words of Houston Smith, uh, who, if you've never heard of him, he's one of the most influential scholars of the 20th century. Um, and what he was referring to are essentially two questions. Number one, did the ancient Greeks use drugs to find God? And number two, did the earliest Christians inherit part of that tradition? Um, if the answer to both of those questions is yes, then it means that, you know, like, Western civilization as we know it was somewhat founded on a visionary experience and Christianity, the world's biggest religion today with two and a half billion people might be tapping into those same psychedelic waters. So these are big questions, obviously very controversial and there's lots of great literature out there and artifacts you can go hunt down. But what I tried to do over the past 12 years is is, uh, sniff out the hard scientific data to really make, you know, heads or tails of this for the first time. Why does it matter, or why is there a distinction between it happening just for the Greeks and it happening for also the foundation of Christianity? So the first chapter of my book is called Identity Crisis, and it talks a lot about this. I mean, at, at, at some point, or for a long time, there, there was no separation between church and state. And I feel like in the West, we're still grappling, at least in the United States, uh, we're, we're still grappling, well, in the UK as well, we're still grappling with this sense of the sacred and the profane. I mean, so the the old narrative is that the ancient Greeks birthed uh, political life as we know it and gave us the arts and sciences and the concept of a university. And, you know, we took their theaters and made it into Hollywood. And we took their Olympic games and we made it into the sports industry. And all this stuff that they gave us, you know, they were able to do all this, but when it came to the meaning of life, you know, they got it all wrong is the prevailing narrative. And here comes Jesus and Christianity and the Christianized Roman Empire, and they're the ones who go off and, and evangelize. And they're the ones who colonize the Americas, for example, and Africa and Asia. It was this, um, it was this evangelization movement, you know? Um, we live in 2021, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. I mean, so there, there's all these identity crises that I think we're still grappling with. Like, sometimes we're Greek and rational, and sometimes we're very Christian and, and irrational, faith-based, um, and which, which is it? And how do we heal that divide? Um, so if you can answer both of those questions, and weirdly, if psychedelics is the thing that unites the ancient Greeks and the Christians when, you know, we're hard up trying to figure out anything that unites them, uh, what, a, what a powerful story. Absolutely. So where do we begin? What's the, what, what even suggests? Why psychedelics? 
So, I mean, I, I spent years asking, asking myself the same question. It starts, for me, it started in 1955. Uh, I wasn't there. Uh, but in the, the, this guy, Gordon Wasson, uh, who, uh, like me, was working on Wall Street. He was working uh, at J.P. Morgan, this former banker turned ethnomycologist. He became obsessed with mushrooms and went all around the world hunting them. Uh, we think he's the first to really document this ceremony in the Mazatecs of Mexico. Uh, psilocybin-containing mushrooms under the tutelage of Maria Sabina. He takes the uh, mushrooms in a very ritual setting, and he has a crazy, you know, visionary experience. But what's weird about Gordon is that instead of saying just, oh, wow, was, wasn't that some crazy geometry or crazy visuals or what the hell was that? This guy, because he's well-read and lettered, you know, he says, I think that I've tapped into the platonic archetypes. He says that these divine mushrooms must have been what was behind the ancient mysteries. Uh, because what happened to me was so real, so vivid, and so clear that I think I've tapped into the realest version of reality. And if I just did that here in 1955, maybe our ancient ancestors 2,500 years ago were doing the same thing because psychedelics are a freaking, they're a mind buster. Uh, and so when someone like that is doing psychedelics and thinking about the classics and history, um, without doing them, I was relying on his testimony to kind of ferret out the same details. I was reading these studies coming out of Hopkins, very similar kind of testimony. One and only dose of psilocybin, crazy visuals, crazy mystical insights. And the first thing I think of is Gordon Wasson and his theory that maybe the Greeks were doing this. And I flashed to this book from 1978, where they were uh, spouting this controversial theory that psychedelics are the roots of Western civilization. And off I go. Why like that's that's a a wonderful postulated theory from some guy that once did mushrooms but that doesn't necessarily justify doing 12 years of a book on it <laughs> that's a good that's a good point <laughs> my wife mentioned something similar at some point <laughs> um so where's the i mean that's my point so where's the data so in 1978 what they had was really interesting literary references around what was happening at eleusis and so for those who don't know eleusis is like the spiritual capital of the ancient world. It survives for about 2,000 years. That is to say, as long as Christianity over the past 2,000. It, it called to everybody from Plato in classical Athens to Marcus Aurelius in the Roman Empire centuries later. And they all talk about this vision. They all talk about this life-transforming event. Like if you went to Eleusis, um, you confronted death and became an immortal. Only people who'd gone there and had this experience walked away from it guaranteed of an afterlife. That's where you went to get your afterlife. Uh, and so it's this really central, pivotal moment in Greek history, in the history of Western civilization. Uh, and there's some testimony from Plato and others that they saw this thing. And there's old poetry, like the hymn to Demeter uh, from a couple centuries before that, which talks about this magic potion. And it lists out the ingredients of this potion called the kukion. Um, and what we're told in the ancient literature and the ancient sources that survived, and not much survived because this was all secret, but what we're left with is the idea of this magical beer that propelled this vision. And it was water, mint, and barley, which again, is not something to stake 12 years of your life on, but according to Gordon Wasson and Albert Hoffman, who discovers LSD in 1938, they were kind of reading between the lines. And they said, it's not water, uh, you know, barley and mint, it's water ergotized barley and mint. So barley that had been infected by ergot, ergot is where we get LSD. And it's a really, really elegant theory because ergot is totally natural. It pops up on all the cereal crops. And uh, it's interesting to think that that may have been there 2,500 years ago, or a lot, lot longer, by the way, which I explore in the book. 
But again, no hard scientific data to support that. What would be the reason for someone, an intellectual like Plato or a, an emperor like Marcus Aurelius, what would be the reason for them to go to this bizarre place and have some odd ritual and change their state? I thought that they would be much more down-to-earth, grounded humans. I think that's the thing that brought them down to earth. Uh, so, you know, Marcus Aurelius, uh, classic textbook stoic, um, he didn't just go to Eleusis. And again, this place survives from the ancient Greek times to the ancient Roman times. And Marcus Aurelius is the perfect example of why, because someone like him, we think he's one of the only lay people to go inside the Holy of Holies in this sanctuary, this temple at Eleusis. It was almost destroyed in the second century AD, and he rebuilds it to Roman standards. He wanted to keep this thing alive, this thing that had spoken to his ancestors and all of our ancestors in the West, going back to ancient Greek times. There was something very, very powerful and very special about this place uh, that's difficult to, to capture in words. But I, I think that, you know, at the center of Greek existence was this idea that you can't think your way into enlightenment um, or you can't read your way into enlightenment. If you read through Plato, what he says about philosophy, he says true philosophy is nothing else but the practice of dying and being dead. And so it, the concept that these Greeks were obsessed, obsessed with investigating death the same way they would investigate the other phenomena in the natural world. I mean, to them, Eleusis was more of a science than a religion. You went there to test the God hypothesis, to have this vision for yourself and peer back the veil on reality and see what's there. What is the die before you die quote? Can you say that in the original language for us? Right. So that comes to us in Greek, and it's inscribed on a plaque at St. Paul's Monastery in Mount Athos in Greece, one of the holiest sites in Orthodox Christianity. Uh, but I think it does tap back because of this Greek lineage into ancient times. And it, it goes, um, an pethanis, prin pethanis, uh, um, If you die before you die, you won't die when you die. Um, and, and, I, and I think this is the kind of thing that was practiced at Eleusis, this kind of near-death experience, this pre-death experience that many walked away from saying was one of the most meaningful events of their lives. And that ties in with what we're seeing at Johns Hopkins at the moment, right? That it's one of the top five most meaningful spiritual experiences that they've had. It's also being used as a tool to help avoid or deal with death anxiety for people who are perhaps terminally ill as well. Right. And that's, I mean, to, I didn't answer your question, but that, that's why I went down the rabbit hole. So there's lots of ancient uh, literature, testimony, data uh, for what it's worth. But, you know, in 2007 and 8, I was reading those studies. And since then, this, this crazy statistic has remained stable. Um, if you talk to Roland Griffiths at Johns Hopkins today, for example, he'll say that 75% of those volunteers over the past roughly 20 years, 75%, three and four, will call their one and only dose among the most meaningful experiences of their lives, if not the most meaningful experience. And so not having done psychedelics, I can still look at that kind of stat and think there's probably something there. <laughs> can you describe, based on what you know and what the research has suggested, what Eleusis would look like? Let's say that we're a bird's eye view or in a drone and we can go around. What would be happening? Who would be there? Where is it? What's, what's going on? Yeah, it's a pretty fun place. Or I think, you know, it attracted all kinds of different people. I think it was probably less Burning Man and more Fight Club. 
Um, you know, they're, they're, psychedelic <laughs> psych club. Yeah, I think it was the psychedelic fight club of the ancient world. Um, there was definitely a party atmosphere or, or, or a raucous nature to it. I mean, so it, it's a nine day, nine night extravaganza. It starts in Athens and you make you do this processional march. You make a ritual pilgrimage 13 miles from Athens all the way to Eleusis. And along the way, there's all kinds of rawdy body behavior and women lifting skirts and telling dirty jokes and all kinds of fun stuff. And then you get there. Um, and it's serious as a heart attack. Uh, you know, you, um, you experience eventually the culmination of, of these nine days and nights is a night inside the temple, this all night, this panuchia, this all night affair in this torch lit sanctuary that was dedicated to the goddess Demeter. And along with you, we think, um, the, the, the temple could accommodate about 3000 people. Uh, there were kind of like stairs that lined the perimeter of this sanctuary, um, at some point, a gong is struck, a light emits from uh, the center of the temple. Um, this is after a magic potion has been passed around. And here appears, uh, appears Persephone, the goddess of the underworld. And sometimes she's described as hold, uh, holding a baby, the baby Dionysus, or the baby Yahus. And it's this idea that from death springs life. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interpreted for a long time as just this very visceral initiation into uh, the cycles of fertility and the seasonal cycles but there was something very personal happening to these people um so they didn't just like see a stage act it wasn't just stagecraft um there may have been some of that going on but again all the testimony what little survived tells us that there was something deeply personal about whatever they witnessed there hence the theory that part of what they were witnessing was in the mind's eye you know with behind behind closed eyes for example something perhaps psychedelic it seems juxtaposed to have something that's incredibly sacred where only one lay person got to go, Marcus Aurelius, and yet there's this raucous nature on the way there. What's going on? It's it's a great question. I think, you know, um, so there's also a Mardi Gras element, right? Uh, there, there's Mardi Gras and Fight Club and Burning. It's, it, it's a mix of all this. It's definitely a, a public festival at some point, right? Um, and... Uh, I, th I, th I think it's breaking down boundaries. It's breaking down physical boundaries and mental boundaries. And it's kind of, it's, it's like, it's intentional mind benders, you know, um, you know, making just, just horrible jokes at you to kind of break down your ego before you even get there. And on your first visit, you're not, you're not deemed eligible enough to see that magical vision. So you have to visit twice, which is why this whole initiation sequence lasts at least a year and a half. If so not you longer, don't drink, so. you don't drink on the first time. No, you become a mustes. That, that was the title you got. On your first visit, you become a mustes, which is a mystic. It's only on your second visit that you became an epoptes, which in Greek is kind of like, um, you know, somebody who sees it all. Uh, so it was a long, long process to get there. Um, and, you know, part of it is intellectual instruction. And part of it is a really rigorous, you know, physical, exhausting march um, where you show up um, thirsty and hungry. And just kind of beaten down. And I think those are the conditions after all that priming where maybe just the right medicine would put you into the state of mind to actually experience some kind of death and rebirth. Who would be invited? So technically, anybody could go under two conditions. You had to speak some ancient Greek and you can't have committed murder. So if you're not a murderer <laughs> and you know some Greek, you're in. Okay. Uh, 
So I run I run nightclubs in the UK, and it would be interesting if my door policy was based on that. Excuse me, mate. Do you speak <laughs> Do you speak ancient Greek, and have you committed a murder? It's like, well, I can I can whack some Greek out to you, but I'm afraid on the second card, mate, I'm I'm gonna have to go somewhere else. Um, yeah, that might be the the only nightclub where I'd be welcome. Perhaps, perhaps indeed. What are the What are the mysteries? Then you talk about it throughout the book. What are the mysteries? Right. So Eleusis is one example of the mysteries that existed in the ancient world. I talk about the mysteries of Dionysus in ancient Greece. There are lots of other mysteries at Samothrace, the mysteries, the Egyptian mysteries of Isis and Osiris, uh, the mysteries of Magna Mater and different cults from the Near East. I mean, if you had to break it all down and say something very simple, I, I would I would say that these are ceremonial experiences of death and rebirth. Uh, so something is happening where you're shedding your identity. And you're losing that identity in some kind of ego-dissolving event. And you're being reborn, reawakened into a new identity. And that identity is something that is in accord with the natural world and in accord with the cosmos. Um, so clearly there's an experience happening there. That, that's why I always say an experience of death and rebirth, not, not just like um, you know, a crazy theory or something you were listening to, uh, but, but a real visceral experience. Why was all of this, if, it, if it's such a transformative experience, 3,000 people going, is it annual? Is it every year? It was, uh, we think, around the fall equinox once a year, every year. Got you. And it was lasting for quite a long time. And there's multiple different of these mysteries. If that's the case, why is it seemingly kept hidden then? Like sacred religion is written and repeated everywhere. Why is this sacred ritual not? I've been asking myself the same question for many years. I mean, so I'll tell you, I, I'm not, I've been asked this question before, but I'm going to answer it differently this, this time. Um, I'm, I'm going to say this. I, I, I think that because of the way I describe it, this ceremonial death and rebirth, my personal belief is that I, I think there was something to do with the anticipation. And I think that if you know what's about to happen to you, it takes away some of the magic. And I, and I think part of the reason this was kept secret is because you're not supposed to know what's happening to you. So imagine, if you will, like, initiation into a secret society, right? And, you know, you, you come into the sacred chamber and you see a pool filled with alligators, hungry alligators. And, you know, your mates tell you, you got to hop into that pool and get out the other side and then you're one of us. And you say, holy shit, why would I, why would I do that? You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a death sentence. And so you hop in, you get through the whole thing and it's the most terrifying experience of your life and out you come reborn. Now, if you'd been told beforehand that those alligators were perfectly well-fed and didn't want anything to do with you, it would kind of take away from the experience. And so I think Eleusis is something similar. There was this priming going on and this anticipation that was being built up and this mythology that was transmitted from generation to generation. If you know exactly what's gonna happen, if you know you're gonna drink this potion and it's not gonna kill you, but it will you know, mess with your senses for a while. If you're told you know, every detail of that, I don't, I don't think it's as special. Why in that case? So I, I understand why it might have been kept quiet from the people who were going. But in terms of noting things down in history, if you've got over a couple of hundred years, several thousand, tens of thousands of people perhaps attending this, you would have thought that it would have been easier to find the most transformative experience of 30,000 people's lives. Why are you scrabbling for little scraps of paper and having to go to the Vatican in run off to Greece and ask to do testing on the inside of pots and stuff like that. Surely it would be written everywhere. 
Well, I mean, I'd, I'd ask the same question about Jesus. I, I want to know what Jesus was, was all about in this religion of two and a half billion people. And the guy never wrote a goddamn word down. And so we're, we're left with these four somewhat contradictory gospels that are written a generation after, after his death. Uh, we're left with the epistles of St. Paul, who never met the guy in the flesh. You know, he receives all his information and these visionary experiences. And yet it's the world's biggest religion, man. It's two and a half billion people. And we don't have a word from this guy. I mean, how is that possible? Very, very good point. So what happened? Like, you've got this amazing transformative ceremony why is it still not happening today so there's a lot of different answers to that um part of the answer i talk about this in the book i mean part of the answer is the christianized roman empire the the, the christian emperors weren't too happy with eleusis and the other pagan traditions stalking around messing up the show and so by the end of the fourth century a.d um, a number of decrees are issued in the second half of that century trying to do away with this stuff they, they try to do away with nocturnal ceremonies which would include Eleusis, and then it comes back. Um, and, you know, a lot of the old libraries and statuary um, kind of disappear, um, not exclusively at the hands of the Christianized Roman Empire, uh, but there's this generational loss of knowledge. And to your point, if nothing's written down, there's no doctrine, there's no dogma, there's no records for this stuff, <clears throat> if anything's going to go up and smoke pretty quickly, it's something like these mysteries. Have you got any idea of what the last time it happened would be? You said it went away, came back? More or less. I mean, so in the last decade of the 4th century AD, 392, more or less, is, is the last time I think we see this celebrated in a ritual way. And how's the banning of these rituals described? Like, what went on? Was it burning down the temple? And See, at, at some point, this is why I say you can't exclusively blame the Christians. I mean, at some point, the barbarians get their hands on Eleusis. And the big question is, you know, how do they just march in and take this place down? Well, they did it once in the 2nd century. It happens again at the end of the fourth century, but you know, part of me thinks that the Christian emperors kind of open the gates and just uh, let the rioters stampede. Mm. So why does this matter? Like, what what are the implications if it's true? The broader implications, other than Plato and Marcus Aurelius and a bunch of other famous people that we know about had a great time. Because what if this is the real religion of the ancient Greeks? And, and what if this identity crisis that we have is a false one? You know, what if the people who created the foundations for our life today were the same people who were very obsessed with finding out a meaning for life? I mean, what if it, in addition to our faith traditions, in addition to the Bible, the New Testament, what if in addition to all that, these ancient philosophers and mystics had ideas that weren't that distinct from Christian mystics and some of these heretical sects like the Gnostics? or some of the very mainstream followers of Jesus. I mean, the big question I ask in the book is, you know, is the ancient Greek of the pagan world and their rites and practices at all related to the ancient Greek of the New Testament and their rites and practices? And, you know, again, it's this, Greek is the sacred language of Christianity. And so by looking into these mysteries, um, what I'm really studying is what's called the pagan continuity hypothesis. Was there something about Plato and the rest of them and his philosophy and these rites at Eleusis? Is there some of that that actually made its way into Christianity, into the earliest Christian communities that we know for 300 years were practicing secret, illegal mystery traditions inside private homes and, and graveyards? I mean, there's a lot of crossover. It seems to me, looking back at what I know about Greek philosophy and what I understand about Christianity, that they do seem like two pieces of opposite puzzles, or of the same puzzle, perhaps, that you had this 
incredibly grounded, very uh, virtuous, not to woo-woo. There was limited, at least in my experience, to do with the Greeks. They had their gods, but it wasn't as sort of a personal transcendent uh, type of philosophy with regards to that. Whereas with Christianity, almost everything was about the theology. It was about the, the it, paying tribute to the higher power and a lot less to do with the personal sovereignty that seems to be based around the Greeks. And it it does seem odd that you could go from a society that we're now in 2020, that Ryan Holiday is making a living off in 2020. You could go from such a pragmatic society and philosophy into one that I think even to Christians now, they're not superbly proud of a lot of the things that went on around that time. There was, It was very militant the way that Christianity kind of came aboard with conversions and crusades and things like that. It really does feel mm. like there is a missing piece there. Mm. And that's what I'm looking for. And, and, and part of the hard, you know, the hard investigation is that when you go looking for answers, you find this sacred territory split into two departments. Uh, so, you know, in most universities, most institutions, theology is, is very different from the classics. So if you're interested in what all the pagans were up to, you're studying classics. You're studying the ancient Greek works of Plato and others. If you're into the Jesus stuff, same language, by the way, um, you're suddenly in the theology department or divinity studies. And there's a quote I have in the book from an old scholar from like the early 20th century who says that, you know, the literature and civilization of a very extensive part of world history is very much neglected by the very ones best able to investigate it, which is the classicists. I mean, these are the people who study, uh, you know, all the, the that powerful syntax and grammar and, and gorgeous language of the ancient Greek. And when you ask a classicist to read the New Testament, they read it a little bit differently, which is why I got obsessed with this theory from 1978. Um, it wasn't just Gordon Wasson and Albert Hoffman who I mentioned. It was Karl Ruck, this Harvard, Yale-trained classicist who reads the New Testament very differently from the way your average priest might read it. And he reads it with the lens of a pagan and with the lens of someone who was initiated into these mystery schools. Um, and I say I say the lens of a pagan, which is not fair. He's a good Catholic boy, uh, <laughs> just like me, just like me. What, outside of the uh, rhetoric and what was written down, and the presence of ergot in the uh, barley or in the wheat. Um, what other convincing evidence have you found? Um, I, I'm looking at everything, right? So part of me is looking for that hard scientific data. Is, is there actual, which we haven't talked about yet, but is, is there any you know, archaeobotanical data for one of these spiked beers, these ergotized beers or one of these spiked wines out there? I mean, that, that's a whole separate question, but like what's in the literature? Um, you know, just from the literary perspective, and this is what classicists do, is they read the old texts and find out what's there. I mean, um, I didn't spend a lot of time reading Dioscorides when I was learning Latin and Greek. Uh, but afterwards, I started reading his Materia Medica, and he writes this. Dioscorides is the father of drugs, and he writes this massive treatise in ancient Greek in the first century AD, the same time the Gospels are being written. And in his magnum opus, he has all these formulas, these recipes for spiking wine with all kinds of funky herbs and plants and different things. And he says even at one point that one of these plants will, will cause not unpleasant visions, fantasias u aedais. So he's talking about psychedelics at the same time that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are writing their Gospels. 
um, and later John. And it makes you wonder, you know, if the Greeks knew about all this stuff, if they knew about pharmacology, what are the odds that some of that pharmacology would make its way into the same ancient Greek speaking communities who had inherited all this stuff from their ancestors? Um, one place you would look at is Corinth, for example. You know, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, you hear it at every wedding you go to. Um, Corinth today is 45 minutes to the west of Eleusis, this ancient spiritual capital. Now, what are the odds that an early Corinthian who heard about this, uh, this son of God, born of a virgin, with this new magical gift of immortal wine, this magic potion, what are the odds that either they themselves or someone they knew was not initiated? at Eleusis, where this magic potion had been splashing around for, for centuries and centuries. And so to me, the Gospels are playing off of this pagan continuity. What research has been done into the archaeobotany or the archaeochemistry of it? So that, that's the fun part. That's the fun part. Um, the short answer is not a hell of a lot. So I had to, I had to try and find out the, the scholars who were working on this stuff. And I eventually came across Andrew Coe, who's at MIT. Uh, I mean, I, I would say the world's leading archaeochemist. Um, he's responsible, amongst other things, for unearthing the world's oldest wine cellar in Galilee, the same Galilee where Jesus is born, except it dates, it de- it dates well before Jesus to about 1700 BC from the Canaanite period. And it's wine that Again, through gas chromatography, mass spectrometry, uh, their finding is spiked with all kinds of funky stuff like honey, storax, terebinth, cypress cedar, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you know, you might say, oh, it's just interesting, you know, aromatic flavor profile enhancing type stuff. And that's certainly true. But the big question I'm always asking Andrew is were there other psychoactive additives, psychotropic additives? And theoretically, his answer has always been yes. Uh, why not? Let's go find the data. So, you know, based off some leads from him, I was pouring into these archaeobotany journals and eventually came across um, a couple different things. So one hit for ancient beer, one hit for ancient wine, um, both discovered in the 1990s and largely ignored by the academic community. And as best as I can tell, like never reported to the public, uh, just archaeologists doing what they do, finding amazing things. And there it sits in a, in a journal. Uh, but in Spain, from the second century BC, uh, I came across this study of an ancient Greek sanctuary. There were Greeks in Spain, just like there were Greeks in, in Greece and Italy. And from the second century BC, they found this tiny chalice about a couple inches high, and it went under analysis, and they found the remains of beer and ergot. So there's your ergotized beer, this crazy idea from 1978. We now have you know, actual scientific data to corroborate that, um, which is pretty crazy. I'm trying to think about what the reason would be. I understand that the Christian church was being pretty forthcoming at trying to convert everybody. They were, you know, they were, they were full on. They were, it was a big relationship with the Christians. Um, but I'm trying to work out what the, the fear that they would have had as opposed to repurposing the existing ritual and just rebranding it um, why they would get rid of it and i think i've heard you talk about this before that it would uh, taking a psychoactive substance gives you direct access to god in one form or another you no longer actually need the medium that is the church or the priest or the um the, the religion at wide you just it's you and him speaking directly to him is that your sort of conception of it as well i think that's again i think that's part of the answer 
um, it, it, it's hard for me to figure out what was going on in the fourth century. And I, and I think I'm on record saying something like I sympathize with the church fathers. And I'm not sure what I mean by that, <laughs> but, um, you know, <laughs> but they were, they were in the business of, of church building, which at the time is in the business of nation building. And how do you do that with this secret illegal cult where people are meeting in private with no standards, who the hell knows what's going on behind closed doors or literally underground in family catacombs. I mean, this is where Christianity took root in private houses and catacombs for 300 years. There was no brick and mortar churches. There were no physical basilicas until Constantine in the fourth century AD. So once it comes above ground, literally, and once um, you know Christians aren't being hunted down by lions, uh, you know, how do you get this faith off the ground? And, and I think that you need standards and you need dogma, which is why all these church councils get together and they figure out which books go in and which don't. And yeah, there was a hack job going on. I mean, there was, you know, the, um, the, the, the Gnostic literature disappears. Um, all these texts from Nag Hammadi, Egypt, for example, that were dug up in the middle of the 20th century and these beautiful, beautiful testimonies that talk about a different Jesus, like in the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Mary Magdalene which is now, I think, over 125 years old. Um, you know, there were other versions of the faith out there, and slowly but surely they start to disappear in the 4th and 5th centuries. Now, again, part of that is the church trying to do what it does, which is, you know, build a bureaucracy, create something coherent, um, which they've never been able to do successfully, right? This is why we have the schism between the Catholic and Orthodox, and then we have the Protestants, and now we have the Evangelicals and everything else. I mean, it's hard to hold this thing together. What I sense in the early years was was an attempt to uh, cohere um, uh, a religion that was very much um, uh, in danger of disappearing. Uh, and along with that goes all these secrets and all these mysteries. Talk us through your experience researching in the Vatican. Obviously, this sounds pretty heretical. Why, why did they even let you near Rome? I don't know. That's a, that's a good question. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure that so out. So what do you do? Do you email um, the Pope? Do you send him a DM on Twitter? What happens? Yeah, I was like, um, you know, Frank, it's Brian. Um, <laughs> you got some cool stuff. I'd love to see it. Uh, they're, <laughs> they're, it's, it's, it's not that, I mean, it is, it's very difficult to, to get your way into the Vatican secret archives and, and the catacombs. Um, you know, I, I was very honest with, with folks. You know, I talked to the archivist at the Secret Archives and the Archive of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which holds these Inquisition records. And I went underground with this Vatican archaeologist to look at the frescoes in these catacombs. And I, you know, I would tell people, here's my crazy idea about this psychedelic Eucharist. And um, I think it's just as crazy as you do. Because uh, I don't know, I haven't seen the hard scientific data for it. I'm out there looking for it all over the Mediterranean. Um, I'd like to know if there's any evidence here. Um, you know, so part of it is just asking them if, if we could test different vessels and different chalices, which they're sitting on in the hundreds of thousands, you know, in their own handwriting from the 16th century or the 15th century. Is there is there a mention of these magical potions? Uh, and the short answer is there is there. You know, they're they were they were hunting and targeting witches, um, at least partly because of their knowledge of these traditional healing mechanisms, um, and sometimes visionary medicines. Uh, so it's, it's all there preserved um, in the literature. What does it feel like being underneath the, the absolute epicenter for the Christian faith rooting through? I mean, you're in the necropolis, which is this sort right. of bit below the 
the Sistine, not below the Sistine Chapel, below um, the Vatican, right? And there's multiple. St. Peter's. Is it below yeah. St. Peter's Basilica? Just multiple layers yeah. below that. What's it feel like? You must have been, it must, it's proper Dan Brown shit. It was, uh, that, that's what I said uh, to the priest who was with me. This is, this is Dan Brown shit. And I felt like I, I'd never get out. Like there was a, you know, uh, uh, there would be the clank of a gate. And that'd be the, the last time I breathe fresh air. Uh, they're, everyone, they're all cool, man. They're, every, everyone's very cool in the Vatican. I might be one of the few people to say that. But everyone, uh, they're all super cool to me um, in the Officio Scavi, the excavation office there. Um, I was looking at you know, what, what could be one of the first mosaics, one of the first representations of Christian art directly under St. Peter's Basilica in one of these tombs, the tombs of the Julii. And there you see uh, these vines just curling all around this figure seated on a horse. And I'm not the first person, uh, art historians have said, there, there's a real mix-up here of, of Jesus and Dionysus, all these Dionysian vines, you know, uh, uh, whirling their way around this, this mosaic. It, it's hard to know what to make of that. And it's hard to know what was going on down there. Uh, because from the records we have, there was some pagan shit going on underneath the Vatican in the early days. This is where they went, like other catacombs, to commune with the dead. They went there to meet St. Peter. Before there was a St. Peter's Basilica, they went there to camp out amongst these graves and host these parties, which the professor emeritus of history at Yale University calls chill outs. They went to have chill outs with the dead uh, to drink their wine and have a feast every day in some cases. So, I mean, you know, Rome was a fun place to be. How does the mysteries at Eleusis relate to the Holy Sacrament? I mean, well, there's the big question. And the, how I try to answer that in the book is by using the mysteries of Dionysus as the translator. So you have all these mysteries at Eleusis, right? And it's these pilgrims making this march, drinking this potion, having this vision. It's all administered by the state. So even though it's technically open to lots of different people, as we mentioned, um, it's a very formal event. At some point, you have the mysteries of Dionysus, and it takes the concept of a magical potion takes it out of the sanctuary, away from the temple. So where are the mysteries of Dionysus being celebrated? Outdoors, open air churches in the forests and mountains. It's people getting smashed in these drunken orgies in honor of the God of wine, right? And then here comes Jesus, not too long after that. In fact, at the same time, I mean, in Galilee, ancient Israel, uh, ancient Palestine, you will find images of Dionysus um, all around Galilee. I mean, so, you know, his cult was there at the same time that the cult of Jesus was just gathering steam. Um, and what is Jesus doing with this magic potion? He's saying, not only can you take it out of the temple, not only can you take it to the open air church, but take this magic potion that makes you immortal, nothing less than that, and take it into your dining room. So I, I think by domesticating these mysteries, I think that for some early Christians, I think that's how they would have read the early accounts of Jesus. Here's this guy taking an immortality potion, that's his blood, the same way that the wine of Dionysus was described, by the way, the blood of Dionysus. And he's taking it inside the dining room and saying, you can celebrate this at home. It's okay to do this at home. Because at the time, that was a sacrilege in Eleusis. You were not allowed to celebrate that at home. Um, we have accounts of people trying to do that, and it was this massive scandal in Athens. And so here comes Jesus with a new model to preserve, in some cases, these mysteries. Well, you see the imagery of the Last Supper, and you've got everyone looks fairly cozy, you know. They look pretty. They look pretty merry at that 
situation. <laughs> I'm aware it's not a photograph. No, but we, I mean, we have the accounts, um, aside from the, aside from Leonardo's imaginings of it. Uh, it's, you know, the Eucharist, the Last Supper is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in John, it's really, it's weird. In John, it's different. Um, it's Jesus giving a sermon outside, but he's talking about the same thing. He's talking about his flesh and blood. And he uses really weird language that, by the way, is not Jewish. You know, so people think about the Last Supper and this cozy affair amongst friends. It's this, you know, this Passover meal before his death, this morning of Jesus before his death. Um, I can't think of a single Jewish dinner where, where, where human flesh and blood is being served. Uh, and yet here comes Jesus saying, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Not will have, not will go to heaven. Right here tonight, if you drink and eat, you are an immortal. This is the same, the same way these sacraments were described by the pagans. And think about it, like munching on this flesh. It's a really evocative word that Jesus uses in Greek there, drogon, to munch on my flesh. It's like this really graphic, visceral event that's being described. Um, so who the hell knows what was going on? Did, did you totally lose your shit with how many questions you have to ask yourself? Because every situation that you come across, everything that you find out is that, oh, that's interesting. And now here's 3,000 questions that, <laughs> that are implied by me knowing this one extra bit. Uh, you, des you describe the, the torturous process of, of me talking to my editor for a couple of years. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> but this chapter is so important, man. They're, they're going to love this chapter. You know, it's, it's really essential to the argument. One thing I was thinking about while reading the book was how our existing cultural structures affect the way that we experience psychedelics. I know that this may not necessarily be your precise field of study, but it's an interesting question that I want to ask you anyway. So can you imagine mm. what would be seen by a human who grows up in a lab with no cultural input? So what would they see... Like, how much is the transcendent effect intrinsic to the drug, and how much is enabled by the existing narrative frameworks that we have in our own minds? Hmm. That's a great question, man. Um, it's you know, it, it, it dovetails it dovetails to my work. I mean, I do talk to the clinical psychologists about this stuff, and the psychopharmacologists. What everyone agrees on is that set and setting are integral. I mean, this is not, it's not a wonder drug. Um, and more importantly, psychedelics just are not for everybody, which is why they've been successful in their trials at Hopkins and NYU by screening certain people out. Um, you know, it, it takes, it takes um, a really heroic emotional psychological preparation to prepare for this stuff. And, you know, just, just think about what the word psychedelic means in Greek. It means to manifest the contents of the psyche, is how I translate it, psychedelos. And so when that happens, I mean, before you even begin thinking about that, why don't you try dusting off those contents for yourself? I mean, you know, you dream about them every night. Have you addressed some of those traumas from your childhood? Have you addressed some of those pitfalls in your relationships? Um, some of that, that shadow work that plays out in your everyday life. There's lots of work that you can do before psychedelics. And which is part of the reason I haven't done them. I mean, there's lots of stuff that you can do, um, including mindfulness and meditation and, and all the rest of it. Um, you know, so once you get to that point, when, when all this stuff is being laid bare, and I don't know what would happen to someone who was grown in a lab, um, 
Uh, that'd be an interesting experiment. Uh, it'd be hard to get FDA approval for that. Uh, but, uh, you know, what's what, what people are, I think people are playing on memories and people are playing, you know, on the archetypal things that live inside the subconscious of all humans, um, yeah. which is really powerful stuff. There's this thing, this the, the, these images come out. I mean, you know, a Christian will have an image of, a, of an Indian deity. And, you know, uh, some guy in the UK will have an image of a Mayan god. And it's really hard to explain why that's the case. That's what that's what fascinated me about it. I wonder, obviously, as you say, slightly unethical and um, perhaps unrealistic experiment to run. But it would be fascinating to see, because that would be the ultimate um, control. You would be able to control exclusively for cultural inputs for all of the existing narratives there's certain things you get the visual distortion that almost everybody says in terms of geometric patterns for instance Mm. so you perhaps always going to have that uh no matter Mm. what you're looking at no matter who you are what you've grown up what your thought patterns are like inside of your mind but can you imagine if people reported these people who were grown up without these cultural inputs cultural narratives and frameworks inside of their mind and they reported similar manifestations, which would be, this is something universally held within us all. I don't know. I just thought mm. that was. I thought that was a really interesting thought experiment. I like that. I mean, but you know, some of the researchers do do write about this. Bill Richardson, uh, who's one of the researchers at Hopkins, does write about this about the encounter with the archetypes. I mean, there are are people who haven't been trained in, or to the best of their knowledge, haven't been. Uh, substantively exposed to some of these traditions that do pop up. I mean, kind of spontaneously, like, you know, gods and goddesses from different faith traditions that just don't belong in the contents of someone's psyche on the eastern coast of the United States. And yet in, in, <laughs> in comes this stuff. Did you discuss with anybody about the potential dosage or an equivalent dosage that people may have been consuming? In the ancient world, see, that's what's really hard, man. Uh, so even though even though we found some of the archaeobotanical, archaeochemical evidence, uh, t- to this day, to the best of my knowledge, the, this kukion potion or some of this spiked wine hasn't been recreated to the standards of antiquity. Um, so, I mean, th- that's something I very much want to do. Even with this find in Spain, we still want to retest uh, that chalice and, and, and really figure out, like, what was the formula here? What were the measurements? Uh, because by all accounts, like an uh, ergotized beer is not the most pleasant trip. I mean, it's kind of terrifying. I mean, ergotism traditionally leads to all kinds of really unfun things like gangrene and convulsions and, and stuff like that. But maybe what, I'm, what I've been thinking recently is that maybe it was a very low dose. And other folks have mentioned this to me who are more experienced than me. Uh, but maybe it was a low dose that, again, just kind of um, that rejiggered the brain somehow that just set it. I mean, just just to the left. Of, of normal after all that fasting, maybe some sleep deprivation, the long march from, from Athens, for example, a low dose, a lower dose uh, of ergotized beer could have been the kind of thing um, to have a really powerful vision. I don't know. It's just, there's so many questions, man. Has anything come out since your book was published? Has there been, are you continuing to research? Are you still, is there a sequel? Like what, what's your yes. current? Oh, there is a sequel. Wow. It's all, it's all happening, man. Um, as just one, one tiny example, um, National Geographic and others reported in November, I think it was, about this. Uh, you can Google it, the Pinwheel Cave. The Pinwheel Cave in California uh, from the Chumash tribe. I think it's only a few hundred years old, so it's, it's not going into deep antiquity. But about 
400 or so years ago, uh, they found this cave with uh, a datura flower uh, painted on the ceiling of this cave. And inside crevices in the rock, they actually found the organic remains of datura quids, which is a very hallucinogenic uh, plant, flower. Um, it has contains all these tropane alkaloids, the same kind of alkaloids that may have been present in these wine potions I mentioned that Dioscorides was writing about in the first century AD. Uh, so a very interesting find, and it was called the very first archaeochemical evidence uh, for the coexistence of rock art and psychedelic drugs. And I mean, that happens in 2020 for no reason whatsoever um, at the time that all this, you know, we're talking about all this stuff. So, you know, every time I open the, the computer, there, there's another story out there. What's next for you? Uh, so we're, we're still doing uh, this documentary series and um, pushing forward on that. I am writing uh, a second book that is uh, very much related to but distinct from the first one without giving too much away. Um, lots more clues, um, lots of more ancient signals. And, you know, the big question, what does this mean for the future? of medicine, religion, society, all those kind of questions in the midst of a global pandemic and economic turmoil and civil unrest and political discontent. I mean, I think it's a very interesting moment that we're living in and people are looking for meaning. And isn't it interesting to think about this continuity, right? Not just from the Greeks and the Christians, but maybe to us. And maybe we're living at this moment where some of this technology is, is being resurrected. It's, uh, it's a big question. Well, think about what people have turned to in this time of need. Copies of Marcus Aurelius's Meditations and paperback were sold out at the beginning of 2020. Uh, you think, wow. why would someone go 1,800 years back to a philosophy that, uh, was it Aristotle or Plato, that thought the brain only existed to get rid of heat out of the body? And you're like, <laughs> you know, on some stuff they were so right, and on other stuff so far off. In germ theory hadn't gone through when as a uh, Marcus Aurelius is dying from the plague as he's caught in the, the Antonine plague that he's struggling to breathe because of the amount of incense that's burning in the room because they thought the incense would get rid of the plague it would help to get rid of the air particles in the air and all that they were doing was forcing Marcus Aurelius to like smell like someone's awful auntie's house like the, the the spiritual the spiritual ante who's always burning incense, it was just like forcing him to do that. So on one side you have these people who are obviously incredibly detached from what we understand now, and yet the more universal elements, the things that they were able to observe more accurately, human nature, meaning, flourishing, what does it mean to be virtuous, to have temperance, those mm. things are what people in mm. 2021 are going back to. They're relying more on the writings of Marcus Aurelius than they are on anybody for the last 1800 years. And hmm. this crescent, this story arc that we're coming back to psychedelics, precisely the same. If what you say is true, if what you've discovered is correct, and it's taken us around about 2000 years to start using therapeutically something which could have aided the last two millennia, of human civilization, then we have a lot of catching up to do. And it is just fascinating the way that these things are coming in full circle. 
I agree. That's beautifully put, man. I, I couldn't say it better than that. You just you just wrote the back cover. That's perfect. Fine. That's that's. I'll, I'll give you the rights. We can we can discuss deals off air, man. I've uh, <laughs> I, I've loved today, Brian. It's so fascinating. Your dedication to this. You've been told it a million times, but your dedication to this project is ridiculous. It's psychopathic, um, and in <laughs> in in the good way. In the in the great way, not in the Brian Rose from London Real way. Um, where can people go? They want to keep up to date with what it is that you're doing where should they head i'm not going to spell my romanian name so i'll say um the immortality if you go to the immortality uh you'll see my, my homepage there and it links to all my social media so i, I try and keep it updated and um I'm, I'm usually terrible about it but i'm better on twitter and instagram so you can see some updates there Everything will be linked in the show notes below, including a link to the Immortality Key wherever you can get a hold of it. Man, I'm going to have to get you back on. We're going to have to talk about the new book and the when Tom Hanks decides to accept the role and whatever new discoveries we've got. So round two will happen soon. Um, I'm, I'm there, brother. Thank you very much for tuning in. If you haven't already got yourself a copy of my Ultimate Life Hacks list yet, then what are you doing with your life? Go to chriswillx.com slash lifehacks and you can download the free PDF today with over 200 ways that you can upgrade your life instantly. It is a library of every life hack that we have ever featured on the show, including links to buy on Amazon and much more. chriswillx.com slash lifehacks. Go and download it right now. Right this moment, right now. Peace.